Well, we've come to the end of our journey through this series, The Walk of Life, where we've been reflecting on the first message that Jesus preached, uh, certainly the first message that's recorded in the book of Matthew. Just to take us right back to the beginning, why did we start this? Because the end of it is, is just a, fi- a great kind of conclusion to why we actually started it. And it's essentially this. How do you live your life? How do you walk your walk of life? We all have, I was listening to somebody on the radio just this past week, and they captured um, in, in their enthusiasm, they were doing some sort of really scary kind of extreme um, event, that they, they reflected, captured really the idea that a lot of people live by today, which is, I've got one life, live it kind of idea. Just make the most of it. Uh, maybe that's where you are. Maybe that's where your thinking is. It's just make the most of the life that I've got. But it does also point, doesn't it, to that that is true. We have one life here in this world. It's significant. What we do with this life is significant. It's not uh, meaningless. It's significant. Jesus reflects that right at the very end of this series where he say, he starts talking about the whole of life. He describes it in this wonderful, again, he uses a metaphor that is so common to us. He describes that we can live our life like people who are building a house. And when we build our house, we either place it on good solid foundations or we place it on dodgy foundations and the outcome of our foundations is significant. But the picture is incredibly powerful, isn't it? It's a way of saying that in lots of ways through life, we go about the job, don't we, of building our lives. We build our life around something. We all build our life on something. We all have a foundation. You might look at the story that Jesus tells of two men, one who builds his house on a rock, one who builds his house on sand. And uh, it seems really obvious that the sand is the dodgy, shifting one. But the reality is they are both some kind of foundation, some kind of base on which a life is built, on which we, we place our reliance, our trust. I just want to stop for a moment and for each of us to just take a thought, take a moment to pause and to think, on what, on what foundation is my life built? We all have them. It's good to pause and to say, to reflect and to think, I might claim that I've got my life built on certain foundations, But the reality is, when I think and when I ponder, they're not quite as built on those foundations as I think. Very often, they're built on a whole other foundation. And I've not been honest with either people around me or even honest with myself on what my foundation, my life, is built on. Um, I was listening to, again, Tim Keller's really helpful in this. He said, one of the ways in which we can understand our foundations is when we think, if that, whatever that is, was taken away, 
my life would crumble. My life would not be worth living if that was taken away. It's a great way for us to stop and think in our daily lives if I lost that, it'd just be over. Now, I just want to stop and say there is, there is that kind of emotional hit that comes with certain loss, which I understand that, and it can feel as though our world has fallen apart when we lose certain things. I'm not so much thinking about that. I'm talking about the really deep thought through. If I lose that, if that goes, my life is not worth living. And we stop and we think about that and we say, well, okay, that's, what might that be? It might be your career, it might be your relationships, it might be your family, it might be the security of money, it might be the, the, the fact that you are a respected, valued person in the community. You are looked upon as being somebody of integrity and value. You know, that is a really powerful thing. It's a great, you know, my integrity, my name is of huge importance. And if that, the reality is, you, say, you might think that I can't, that can never be taken away from me. We can be shocked at what we think we don't do, can't do, wouldn't do, would never do. We can be shocked at what we suddenly find ourselves in the middle of. And suddenly the integrity of our name that has been our foundation to the whole of our very being is no no longer there. That is shot to pieces. I am no longer that respected person. So even if we, if we take away and we say all of those materialistic things I'm going to put to one side, I want to just stop and say there are so many people who've suddenly find themse- found themselves realizing that they have been willing to do something that has shocked them and their name is no longer what it was. Can I ask you, if that is where you are, if that is what your confidence is rooted in, And then that goes, is it possible that the foundations of my life just fall apart? So it is really, really important, this final concluding little section, isn't it? Jesus is rounding it off and he's saying to every one of us with a kind of a timeless metaphor, we all build our lives on something. So let's make sure that we build good foundations. There's an initial thought that comes to mind here, isn't there? That, well, Jesus is now creating this picture that says that there are just two categories of people. One category of people who build their life on sand, one category of people who build their life on the solid rock, and there's the two. I think actually as we've seen this unfold, as we've seen the way Jesus has portrayed this, there are actually three ways to live. I mentioned this last week. There are actually three ways to live. There is is one way to live which Jesus has challenged right the way through. And that is that we live as though this is everything. As though just make the most of my life, put me at the center. 
And Jesus has challenged that. He said, you must not live in that way. You must not live uh, with you at the center. You must not live in a way which says that uh, your success, your, uh, your worth, your value, the way that you are considered is number one. And the way that you can see that is in your attitudes towards your friends, towards your enemies, towards those who are around you. That kind of exposes where you really are. But there would be some who would say, I'm not having that. <laughs> I, I'm not interested anyway in any kind of outward look towards other people. It's just about me. Already through what Jesus has said, he's confronted that life foundation and he said, you cannot live like that. To be claimed to be, to claim to be a follower of Jesus in one way or another, through the impact of Jesus in our lives, it must be that our self-indulgent tendency is being chipped away at. It must be that we are changing with regards to that. It must be that little by little we are expressing love outside of ourselves. No longer that self-serving kind of tendency which is our natural being. Jesus has already kind of challenged that. Right? What I want to suggest here is that That's one way to live, but there are also two other ways to live. And that is represented by these two houses. Two ways, two two patterns of living. And actually, they both, on the face of it, look the same. Do you remember right at the very beginning, if you were able to be here, if you were part of this, Jesus said, and he starts really with this, this message, he brings into his vocabulary and into his conversation a group of people who become really significant in the whole of his life and in the whole of his ministry. And that's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who are, if you like, the, the cream of the moral religious elite. They would be the ones who would, you would look at and you would say, they are the ones who surely are right before God. So they are the ones who've not said we're abandoning and living only for us. They're actually saying, no, we are living according to your law. And they've taken God's law and they've worked it out and they've got a great roadmap for what it means to be a follower of God. We're really moral. We're really upright people. We do the things that God demands. And they build their house on that basis. Build the house, absolutely. So that the, found the, 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 the way in which we create a pattern of life reflects the way that we believe that God would have us live. How I should live. And then Jesus comes along in that and he says, now, I want you to take that and understand that your righteousness, your pattern of life, your way of thinking needs to exceed that goodness. Hopefully this should be kind of 
reminding us of what Jesus has done repeatedly through this message. I want you to take that and I want you to exceed that. He did it in this way when he talks about um, murder. Here's the law, a way of living, you mustn't murder. Of course, that's a good thing, isn't it? We shouldn't murder. We shouldn't ever murder. It's wrong to commit murder. We know that because the law says it. The law of the land, we know it because God's law says it. And we know it because God's law is written into our hearts. Conscience-wise, we know that it is wrong to take the life of another person. It's just part of our being as human beings. We know that that is a pattern of life that we should uphold. And Jesus says, now let me just take that idea and let me blow your minds. Because if you think it's all about whether you've taken up a knife and stabbed somebody, you've missed the point. The reality is if you are angry with somebody, you have already committed murder in your heart, is what Jesus says. In other words, it's not wrong to live. Jesus doesn't say, okay, look, if you're a follower of me, forget the law, don't worry about it. He says, no, live that, but live it with a completely different attitude. An attitude which is not about whether I've ticked the box, succeeding not to pick up the knife, but an attitude which says, I've not even got angry inside. I've not even got angry inside. To the point where I feel sometimes as if I could just slot that person. <laughs> of, course, of course, none of us have ever been in that situation, have we? Never felt like that. You know, I just, you, we feel it build up. And then, what do we realize? We realize that what Jesus is saying is that the demands that are placed on us, the righteousness demands that are placed on us, are beyond our ability to deliver. If murder is no longer about whether I've not picked up the knife and stabbed somebody, but rather whether I've got angry in my heart, if lust is not so much whether I've actually committed a lustful act, but whether I've had an attitude in my heart as I've looked at another person, if that's what it's all about, I'm realizing that what God is demanding of me is beyond my ability to deliver, and yet I am still called to live like that. In other words, our pattern of living, the way in which we live, looks the same in both cases. Quite similar, actually. It looks faithful, morally consistent, loving, compassionate, gentle. But one says, I'm delivering it, The other says, I haven't got a hope of delivering it. I'll fall apart. And then Jesus starts to talk about, against those two very similar looking houses, the crisis that comes along. The crisis of the storm. A storm that comes along and it's, I mean, again, one of the things that we have in our, um, I guess, opportunity these days is we have media coverage that can take us to experiences which are so distant, perhaps, from some of our own experiences, things that we haven't seen. 
We can be taken to other parts of the world through media coverage. We can see the dramatic impact of colossal storms. We can see the power of homes being literally washed away. It's just amazing. This picture that Jesus paints is something that, at least from a media point of view, we can relate to. But what if that's our life that's being washed away? The way in which we present ourselves with confidence before God. This dreadful storm. What are the storms in life that upset your confidence and your hope and your security? What are the storms? The storms that undermine your confidence. So many, isn't there? But I guess the ultimate storm is the one which is portrayed again in Pilgrim's Progress, the final storm, the storm of the end of life, that final storm that washes over us, that, that kind of takes us out. When I, was, I remember when I was very young, um, having it read to me initially, there are two characters who get together as friends on this journey and they arrive in a, in a city called... Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair is built right on the way of the king. This this narrow pathway that leads from one city of destruction to the the city of the king. And this Vanity Fair is, which is where the name of the magazine came from, incidentally. Vanity Fair is built right on the pathway of the king. And it's designed to be a distraction from the journey to the king's city. It's designed to take away. It's filled with all of the vice of this world as, a, as an encouragement to, to find pleasure now rather than continuing on a journey. And the two uh, pilgrims who are on their journey, Christian and faithful, are flogged, put into prison, and... Um, I remember the power of it as a little one, as the story is depicted as faithful, great name, faithful is actually killed in Vanity Fair. And what is portrayed is that in the middle of that dramatic, powerful storm that washes over their experience, that kind of in a moment breaks in, and seemingly kind of washes away all of the foundations of the life of faithful, there is a greater hope when what is portrayed is faithful being carried straight away to the city of the king. It's as though it wasn't so much whether he got, in fact this is the message, it wasn't whether he managed to walk from his city to the king's city, successfully, whether he got from one end to the other, it was the confidence that he was on that narrow way. 
And when it was that this storm broke into his life and he was taken away in an instant, he was carried straight away immediately to the king's city. It's not the success of getting there. It's whether you're on the narrow way that is on the journey towards there. That's why he's called faithful. I remember it powerfully just, just resonating in my thinking. It wasn't so much whether he managed to get there, it was the fact that he knew that he was on the way of the king. That's the key. That's a storm, isn't it? That is the ultimate storm to come washing in. You know, all of the other things that can sidetrack us, all of the other things that seemingly can defeat us, they all are subservient to that final storm. So let's talk about the final storm that washes in. Christian carries on his journey and he meets another pilgrim on the way of the king. His name is Hopeful. And they're walking along the way of the king. And they actually finally find themselves in a a beautiful kind of mountain range where they can look across and they can see the city of the king. They can see a beautiful place. They can see a place of hope. It's everything that they had in their minds and more that that was the reason for their journey. This was where they were headed. But they couldn't just walk there. They couldn't just leave the delectable mountains and just wander over to the city of the king because even for them there was another storm. It was the storm of the river that they had to walk through. So when her faithful storm just swept him away in an instant, Christian and Hopeful still had to cross that river, that cold, dark river. It's a poignant, powerful picture that Bunyan portrays, isn't it? And they get to the edge of the river, and where, what is there on the edge of the river for those two men as they reach the edge? There's fear. They're scared as they step into the water. But they're encouraged all of the way over to keep their heads looking up and keep their eye on the, on the city of the king. Because what is it portraying? The real, the real human experience of the fear of death and yet the confidence that looking towards the city of the king is a real hope. And they keep their eyes fixed and they manage stumbling and and fearful and feeling as if at any moment they're going to be swept away and they get over to the other side. And their journey was so different to Faithful's journey. But the end result was the same. They arrive in the city of the king. Why? Why do they get there? Because their foundations were the same. That's the key. Their foundations were the same. They didn't get there and suddenly turn around and say, it's just become too difficult. Or, nor did they get there and say, I'm justified in getting across or whatever it was. They get, got there because of a foundation. Now, amazingly, the first hearers of this message of Jesus, they, they hear only so much. You and I are in the most privileged position. Jesus says in this little section, you've got to build your foundation on the rock. 
It's got to be solid. It's, a, it's a, just a perfect picture, isn't it? You know, um, I know of a house where the foundation, where the, the, the extension that's been built is actually just built on the flagstones of the patio. <laughs> that's not a great extension. That's a really scary extension. It looks great. It looks great, and it's stood up for quite some time, but I'm guessing that at least the storm that's going to come in at some point is when they try to sell it, and the surveyor comes along and says, let's have a look at these exten- this extension, shall I? You know, there's the storm for that extension. But you and I have got the privilege of being able to look ahead and see more words that Jesus used. There's all sorts of debate that starts to rumble on about Jesus. Who is he? And he asks the disciples later on in chapter 16, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That's significant because what's going on in the talk about Jesus is that he's somebody who's died. He's so incredible. He's somebody who's died, who's come back to life. That's how significant it was. One of their ancient prophets, or even John the Baptist, who's been the most recent kind of, kind of renegade voice, powerful voice, but he's been killed and people are saying, well, he, it must be John the Baptist. He's so powerful in what he's saying. And then Jesus turns it around and he says, no, okay. That's what they might be saying. And in a way, he says this to you and me this afternoon. The world can say all sorts of things about who Jesus is. But what about you? What about me? Who do you say I am? Jesus turns to the disciples. Who do you say I am? Because in a sense, that's the critical question, isn't it? It doesn't matter what the general consensus is. It's about what you believe. Now, I guess there are two options. He either is who he claims to be, in which case we've then got to decide how to use that, or he isn't at all who he claimed to be. Peter responds by saying this, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What does that mean? What it means is this. Everything that is written in the Old Testament is all about you. That's what Messiah means. You're the promised one. The one who from the very beginning of time, God has been saying, I will send. But there's something even more that we've come to realize. That that Messiah is the Son of God. It's not some military hero. Peter didn't quite understand all the implications at this point. But he did at least understand this, that you are the Messiah, the promised one. All of these scriptures that we've held for hundreds and hundreds of years have been talking about you. And you are God present with us. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was revealed to you by flesh and this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I want to just make that point this afternoon. If you have reached the point of understanding that Jesus is 
no less than the promised one of God and the Son of God himself, who is the Savior of the world, you have understood that because God in heaven has made you see. That's what Jesus says. Because, my, because the Father in heaven has revealed it to you, you'd say, hang on, Jesus. Hang on, you've, you've spent a year or so by this point with Peter. Aren't you the one who's revealed it? Well, in a sense, yes. But in another sense, Jesus is saying it is a spiritual, supernatural dynamic that takes place for you to see who I am. That's what happens. For you to see who I am is the power of God breaking into your life, Peter. And the same goes for you and me today. It's the power of God breaking into our lives. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means a rock. Interesting. He's a rock. And on this rock, truth, on this truth, who I am, I will build my church. That's what Jesus says. On the foundation, on the rock of who I am, my church is going to be built. What does that mean? Is Jesus all about, you know, some kind of building and all the rest of it? No, he's about people. It's what the church is. It's people who become builders of houses So their lives are orientated and they're built on a rock. And the rock is not a confidence in that we're doing the right thing and a moral uprightness and all of that kind of thing, but the rock of Jesus. So my life and your life, if you are believers in Jesus, is built on the rock which is Jesus. What what are the implications of that? Let's go back to one of our other, impl- other pictures earlier. Maybe your foundation is your moral uprightness, your name, your standing, the fact that you are a person of integrity. And then suddenly you are shocked by the fact that you have done or said X, Y, Z, and all of your integrity is shot to pieces. It's gone. If your life is built on the fact that your moral uprightness is what it's all about, your house is going to fall apart. It's just going to be on sand. But the implications of my life when moral uprightness falls apart, when it's built on Jesus means that the foundation is set on something which is immovable. So my life, which is my house which I have built, even in the middle of moral, ethical crisis and failure, does not fall down. You see that? Do you see the power of what Jesus is saying? It is not about your success of keeping it going. It's about the foundation, which is a life which delivered it perfectly and ultimately. Isn't that amazing? Are you scared about being a Christian because you're not sure whether you can keep it going? 
then stop building your life on sand about your success and your performance. And build it on the rock which is Jesus, the absolute foundation who can never be moved because his life is perfect. That's what Jesus is saying. So in a sense, doesn't it say there are three ways to live? We can reject Jesus and say, I just don't want anything to do with that mumbo-jumbo claptrap. Or I can say, well, I accept that he is the Son of God and he makes demands on me. And those demands are things that I've got to do. And if I do them, he's going to accept me. And there's all of the moral requirements that I've got to do and I'll keep it going. And, I'll, and then suddenly we find that we can't deliver and our foundation isn't there and the waves of human life experience or the final waves of that final experience of death wash away all of the good that we thought we had built. All of the moral uprightness that we thought we had built, it gets washed away. And then we come to the life that is built on Jesus. And it's actually the reverse. We can find that our moral uprightness can fail, but the foundation of Jesus makes it secure. As we come to the end of this, and, 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 and we look at our decisions about how we shape and frame our life. The simple, the simple final statement that Jesus makes is, ensure that you have built good foundations. Make sure your foundations are right. And if your foundations have anything to do with you, they are foundations that are going to fall apart. If those foundations are to do with me, the one who becomes the rock for the church to be built on, then you are secure. Look at how it concludes. People were amazed. And Jesus spoke like this, the people were amazed. They'd never heard anything like this. Never heard anybody speak like this. Never heard anybody speak with this kind of authority. It just blew them away. Because everybody else had cited all of the rabbinic teachers up to that point in time. They'd marshaled together all sorts of references of people who they could point back to and point back to that could say, yeah, well, he said this and he said this and he said this and therefore if I'm saying this, then it must be true. And Jesus comes in and he teaches with an authority that disregards all that's gone on in the past and he says, it's about me. It's about me. I just want to just ask you, as we, conclu- as we conclude, you need, to, you, you need to either be confident in this as you ponder on it and say, yeah, that's where I am. I know that I'm trusting in Jesus. Or maybe you need to be thinking, has the authority of the voice of Jesus really hit me to that point yet? Do I see that he comes with those kind of claims which are way bigger than anything that we could ever imagine? And because he does, he makes demands on me today. Demands that I live by. Demands that give me security and a hope and a future.